All right, everybody, today we are going to pause our study on the letter to the Philippians just for one week, and we'll resume that next week. Now, as you know, yesterday was July 4th. It was Independence Day, and uh, it's the day we celebrate our independence from the tyranny of Great Britain. On July 4th, 1776, our forefathers did something amazing that not only resulted in a new and free country, but also changed the trajectory of the world. When they wrote these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then they went on to list all of the abuses that they had endured over many years and how they had tried without success to have their grievances addressed until finally they were forced, with no other remedy available to them, to declare that we, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that they, the politi all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. You know what? I encourage you, find some time this weekend to read the entire document. I think that every American should read this entire document at least once a year around, around this time. Because, you know, we could use some of that spirit today. I mean, with so many of our political leaders and cultural leaders and leaders in media and entertainment often expressing so much arrogance and, and pride and pomposity and self-righteousness and hatred sometimes. I mean, we could really use more humble leaders who express a firm reliance on divine providence. Uh, leaders who view themselves as leading under God and as people who are answerable to God for their actions. We could use more of that. And wouldn't that be a breath of, breath of fresh air to see that sometime on the nightly news? And so yesterday was Independence Day, right? And, uh, you know, I love celebrating Independence Day. Maybe I love everything about it. Now, maybe not quite as much as I love Christmas, but I love everything about Independence Day. I love the patriotism. I love the community stuff, the fireworks, the barbecues. I, I love all of that. You know, and I know that this pandemic that we're in has kind of put a, a damper on some of that, kind of tamped some of that, that down with some fireworks displays being canceled, some community events being canceled, and it's even harder to get together for barbecues a little bit, right? But, but even though some of the outward expressions have been tamped down a little bit by everything else that's going on, you know, I can tell you that the spirit of liberty and freedom has never burned brighter in the heart of this man right here. You know, and I hope that it's the same for you as well. Because the ideas and the ideals that we were established on, I believe, are better than anything else that man has ever instituted. Right? And, and it's not that we're better people than anyone else, but the idea, the idea that all people are created equal. The idea that all people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. 
The idea of a nation of laws rather than a nation of men, right? The idea of representative government and government by the people and of the people and for the people, right? The idea that uh, the ideas of freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of association and everything else that's in the Bill of Rights. These are ideas that are worth contending for. And they're ideas that most people have lived and died since the time of creation have not experienced. Most people have spent their entire lives living under tyrannical regimes, living under a system of the rule of men rather than the rule of law, where the law was whatever the most powerful man at the time said it was, and it was applied however the most powerful man at the time said it would be applied. You know, and for most Christians, most Christians have lived out their faith without ever knowing or experiencing something called freedom of religion. And even today, most Christians live in places where the government or their culture either seeks to hinder the exercise of their religion or actively persecutes those who follow Jesus. And so the fact that we have these freedoms is something that we appropriately set aside time to be thankful for, that we set aside time to celebrate. Now, I don't make any claim that we as a people have always perfectly lived out these principles. I mean, the fact is, we haven't, right? We're not perfect. And, and there have been times when individuals and groups of individuals and even the government has violated these principles. You know, as a matter of fact, if we're honest, at the time that the Declaration of Independence was signed, right, there was a glaring inconsistency, both here in our country and across the world, in the institution of slavery. And it took a war in which almost 500,000 people died in order to end that. And then in a number of southern states, we saw the passage of Jim Crow laws that treated black people unjustly and unfairly. And then in World War II, we saw the involuntary internment of around 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, more than half of whom were United States citizens. I mean, these things, they didn't live up to the ideals of freedom and liberty and justice and equality. You know what, but I think the point of the celebration, I mean, it's not to say that we're perfect or that we've arrived. The point, I think, is to draw attention to the fact that we can even talk about these liberties at all. I mean, for me, at least for me, it's, it's an opportunity to see our successes and our failures. And it's a reminder to strive for and reach for the most lofty of these ideas and live up to them and live by them. You know, and we should value that. I mean, that should be very valuable to us. And I don't know about you, but as an American, I don't hesitate to pledge allegiance to these ideals. I'll promote them. I'll stand for them. I'll, I'll exercise my freedom of speech, my freedom of religion and, and of assembly and my other liberties. I'll exercise them. I'm not embarrassed to, to pledge allegiance to those ideals. I'll, I'll exercise my right to vote, right, my conscience. And I don't care if I have to don a hazmat suit and walk five miles in a snowstorm, uphill, both ways, carrying my family on my back to get to my polling place. When it comes time to vote and exercise that freedom, I'll do it, right? As an American citizen, I don't hesitate to exercise and promote and pledge allegiance to these ideals, right? We value them, I mean, so highly that for more than 100 years now, as a culture, we've thought it... Um, appropriate and good to start our school days 
with the pledge to the American flag. And the idea is that the flag stands for these principles and these ideals. It doesn't stand for our government. It doesn't stand for our representatives or leaders or anything else like that. Uh, at least for me, I think for so many people, it stands for the ideals of freedom and liberty and equality and justice. And, and so we felt like it's a good idea to remind our children at the beginning of every school day of the importance of these liberties that we possess and the cost of that freedom. And to teach them that everyone around them, white, black, Latino, African, Asian, it, it, they're all deserving of these same liberties and freedoms. I mean, that's the ideal, right? And we pledge our allegiance to these ideals. But it occurs to me this morning that as much as we value these ideals and these freedoms, there's an even higher allegiance for the follower of Jesus. It's an allegiance not primarily to an idea or to a philosophy or to a set of religious rules or to a, to a sect or a denomination or anything like that. It's an allegiance to someone. It's an allegiance to our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an allegiance that's above every other allegiance. You know, one day they came to Jesus and they asked, you know, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He, and he said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. That is the greatest commandment. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to do just a quick, non-exhaustive survey of this allegiance in the Bible and see what it has looked like for many believers throughout history. I mean, what is it like? What does it mean in a practical way to pledge and live in allegiance to God? And so we're going to surf the scriptures a little bit this morning and see that. But would you bow for just a moment in prayer over God's word? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Now open our hearts, God, to understand it. Give us ears to hear you. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's look at what this means to live in allegiance to God in a practical way as we kind of surf the scriptures a little bit to see that. All right, now, think about Noah for just a few minutes. What was allegiance to God like for Noah? I mean, he lived in a day that wickedness was so bad that God said every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart is only evil all the time. Well, you know what? Say that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? I mean, think about this. Elijah thought that he was the only faithful person left in all the world. Now, he wasn't. God said there were still 7,000 faithful people in all of uh, Israel, right? He wasn't. But for, for Noah and his family, they really were the last faithful family on the entire planet. I mean, if you felt a little bit lonely sometimes in your faith during this coronavirus thing, and you feel like coronavirus has got you cooped up, and you feel kind of a little bit, a bit lonely, you know, I mean, at least you've had the opportunity, right, to maybe call somebody, right, and talk with somebody of faith, right, get on a Zoom uh, Bible study and, and connect with other people of faith, right? But for Noah, I mean, there was nobody to call. There were no Zoom Bible studies to get to get on. There, was, there were no gatherings to go to where others were worshiping God together. I mean, he and his family were quite literally the last faithful people on earth. And so for Noah and his family, allegiance to God meant kind of a lonely faith. 
But there's even more than that. Think about this. For Noah, having allegiance to God meant that he spent 120 years on a project that God gave him that no one else understood. I mean, it meant that people mocked him for his righteousness. It meant that people made fun of his faithfulness. It meant that he had worked hard for 120 years on God's plan and had to wait 120 years for God's vindication. You know, and don't forget that Moses was 500 years old when God called him to this, all right? So if you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I'm getting kind of old and up in years, and so maybe God's done with me. Well, think again. It might be the right time for God to use you in something new. Noah endured a lot for his faithfulness, and he endured a long time. But in the end, his faithfulness, his allegiance to God ended with his family being saved, with God making another covenant with him, and with his faith being commended by God. Noah was faithful, and his allegiance brought deliverance for his family. All right, now think about Abraham for a minute. I mean, what was allegiance to God like for Abraham? I mean, his allegiance, think about this, His allegiance to God's plan meant that he was going to have a child at 100 years old. All right, now think about that for a second. I mean, I'm a little bit over 50, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm done having new children, right? I can't imagine what it was like for Abraham to hear that at 100 years old, God's plan for him was a child. But a few years later, it went so much deeper than that one day as God called to him and said, Abraham... Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Say what? I mean, now, we know now in hindsight that that God was never going to allow Abraham to sacrifice his son, right? But Abraham didn't know that. It It was a test to see if Abraham would obey, but oh, what a test that was. I mean, can you imagine what Abraham was going through? I mean, the thought of that obeying God meant sacrificing his beloved son. I mean, do you think there was a struggle of faith there a little bit? I mean, not only that, there's another level to this struggle as well. Remember, God had already promised Abraham that it was through this son Isaac that he would have many descendants. I mean, how would that happen if Isaac was dead, right? Have you ever heard of the term cognitive dissonance? Cognitive dissonance. I mean, it happens when when someone holds two or more conflicting ideas that can't be true at the same time. And, And it can result in discomfort and anxiety and shame and stress and all kinds of negative emotions. You know, while Abraham had cognitive dissonance running wild here, I mean, how can God be loving but also want me to kill the one I love? How can God give me many descendants through Isaac if Isaac's going to be dead as a boy? How, how can God give me this child and then take him from me? How can obeying God require me to do something that, that God doesn't like? You know, I can tell you, the, the anxiety and stress must have just been running wild and running rampant in his heart and in his mind. I mean, there's so much cognitive dissonance here. I mean, so how did he deal with that? I mean, how do you deal with that type of 
of, of conflict, cognitive dissonance in, in your heart? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, in the faith chapter, it gives us just a little insight into how Abraham was dealing with this. It says this, By faith, Abraham, when tested, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offering will be reckoned. All right, and here it is now. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Do you see what's happening here? I mean, I mean, Abraham, I mean, he was wrong about what God's plan was going to be, right? God wasn't going to raise Isaac from the dead. That wasn't God's plan. But something important is happening here in that process. Right? Do you remember last week when we talked about how the Israelites failed right at the moment um, that God was about to lead them into the promised land, right? And in Psalm 106 where it said, you know, they soon forgot what God had done uh, and they did not wait for his plan to unfold. They didn't wait for his plan to unfold. You know, Abraham is the opposite of all of that. I mean, he sees this great challenge before them and all these contradictory things and all these things that don't make sense. And instead of freaking out and running away and getting mad, he, it seems like he's thinking, you know, there's something more here that I'm not seeing. There's something here that I don't understand. I need to wait a little while. I need to be patient and wait on God and see his plan unfold. Abraham waited in faith and in trust. And if you're going to have allegiance to God, there are going to be times when you have to wait for God's plan to unfold. There'll be times when you, when you have to walk through some things that, 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 don't, that don't make much sense, that seem to be contradictory, right? That cause some cognitive dissonance for you. But you need to wait for God's plan to unfold. It's kind of like looking at the back of a tapestry as it's being made, right? The backside doesn't make much sense, right? You see kind of all these lines um, of thread going everywhere, and it doesn't really make much sense until it's finally finished, and they turn it around, and you see the front side. And, oh, my goodness, now it makes sense. You can see the complete picture. You know, when your life looks like a bunch of threads going every which way, and it doesn't even make sense, and everything's kind of crossing and all jumbled up, Sometimes you need to do what Abraham did. Press the pause button and wait for God's plan to unfold so that you can have more complete perspective. And then Abraham's allegiance to God then resulted in several amazing things. Look at it. He says, first, God provided his own lamb, right? You know the story? And then Abraham, the father of faith, became the first and maybe the only person in all of history to really understand what the Heavenly Father went through when he made the decision to sacrifice his own son for the sins of humanity, for the sins of others. And as a result, God made another covenant with Abraham. Not only would he become a great nation as was promised before, but now he says that through your offspring, that is Jesus, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. It's a messianic covenant, a prophecy about the coming of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 
All right, now, before moving on, I feel like I just need to stop here just for a second and kind of make one disclaimer, right? God is not going to tell you to sacrifice your child or to make um, uh, or to harm a child in any way uh, today, all right? We know that that was a one-time test just for Abraham, all right? Jesus said that we should not do anything at all ever to harm a child, all right? So, however, there may be times in your Christian walk when you'll have to deal with some cognitive dissonance, right, when things don't add up and trust God and wait for his plan to unfold. Amen. All right. All right. Think of Jacob. Moving on a little bit, right? Think of Jacob, right? What was allegiance like for Jacob? I mean, his allegiance to God meant learning to walk in faith when it looked like his brother was about to kill him. How would you like that? I mean, and it also meant learning to trust God and to give up control of the situation and let God have complete control no matter what the outcome would be. Think about Joseph for a minute. What was allegiance like for Joseph? Um, His allegiance to God's plan meant that he would be sold into slavery as a teenager. It meant finding out that most of his family hated him. It meant being falsely accused and, and thrown into prison and not knowing if he'd ever get out. But eventually, that allegiance to God and trust resulted in him being raised to the second highest position in the entire kingdom of be, being given wealth and honor and eventually in his ability to save his entire family from starvation. Say, so talk about waiting a little while, right, for God's plan to unfold, for, to see the re- beautiful results of the tapestry that God was designing, right? Think about Moses for a minute. What did allegiance to God look like for Moses? I mean, think about it. Moses had every advantage. He lived in a king's palace. He was considered royalty. He had, he had a life of ease. He had access to the best education. But he left all of that. He gave up all of that to follow God and be associated with God's people. Hebrews chapter 11 describes it this way. He says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. You know, sometimes allegiance to God will require you to take your focus off what you can see and feel and touch and place it on what you cannot see, on who you cannot see. Sometimes allegiance to God requires you, like Moses, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. All right, think about David for a minute. What was allegiance to God like for him? I mean, think about it. When David was just a teenager, right, God announced through the prophet Samuel that he would be the next king of Israel, right? Well, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? But his allegiance to God's plan meant that he would be slandered and vilified by King Saul. He would be the target of several assassination plots. He was forced to flee to the wilderness and live in the hills uh, for his own safety. He lived as a fugitive and the armies of Saul were chasing him until he finally was chased entirely out of his own country and had to go live in a foreign country. You know? And I wonder if David ever thought, you know, God, I never asked for this. 
You know, I, I never wanted to be king. You know, I was content just taking care of sheep and writing songs. You know, but your prophet showed up one day out of the blue and just declared to everyone publicly that I'm going to be the next king, and, and now my life is in ruins, God. You know, it's a mess. God, I never asked for this. What's going on? I mean, do you think David ever had, you know, a opportunity to question, like, God, what in the world is happening here? This doesn't look like what you said was going to happen. But David waited faithfully and patiently for God's plan to unfold. And eventually, that allegiance led to him being made king of Israel, to him becoming the greatest king in Israel's history. Not only that, God established a special covenant with him in which he promised that the Messiah would come from his line. God rewarded David's faithful allegiance to him. All right, think about Daniel for a second. This will be the last one. What was the allegiance to God like for him? I mean, think about it. Here he was. He was, a, he was young, probably a teenager, when, when he and his friends were taken captive to a foreign land and placed in the service of a, of a foreign king and a, a pagan king. And it, it was a new and frightening situation. And he and his friends are probably processing all of this and trying to figure out, you know, how in the world are we going to love and serve and honor God in this environment? And then wouldn't you know it, right off the bat, the guy in charge is telling them that they have to eat all of this food that they couldn't eat if they were going to have allegiance to God and his law, right? And now, the official didn't know that. Uh, the king didn't know that. All the king thought was that he was being generous with his food. But it says Daniel, and his friends also, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Right? So he determined, okay, I'm not, whatever, whatever happens, I'm not doing that. I'm going to honor God first. I'm going to um, uh, give my allegiance to God first, right? Whatever happens. But then something else interesting happens here. He says, instead of making a big public scene of it, of standing up and making some big, huge declaration and confrontation, instead he goes to this official privately and he says, and it says he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. That is, he showed respect for the man by explaining his dilemma um, that he had privately and gave him an opportunity to respond. It says that the official told Daniel, you know, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you food and drink. Uh, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And Daniel came up with this creative solution. He says, okay, well, please then test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the, young, the other young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. You know, and wouldn't you know it, after 10 days, Daniel and his friends looked healthier and better nursed than anybody else, right? So crisis averted, right? I mean, they were able to honor God and the king. You know, sometimes having allegiance to God simply means finding a creative way to be able to honor an authority while honoring God at the same time. Sometimes that's all it is. But then sometimes it's not that, right? Sometimes it's different. Later in Daniel's life, there were some people who were jealous of him, of his position. By that time, he was an older man, and he was the second highest ranking official in the entire Persian Empire. And there's all these other officials who are jealous of him, and they want to take him down and get rid of him, and they're looking for a way to accuse him. But he was so ethical and so trustworthy in everything that he did, they couldn't find any way to accuse him. And they finally said this, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel. 
unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so they devised this plan. They went to the king and said, hey, king, wouldn't it be great if there was a law that said that no one could pray to any other god or person for 30 days except for you? You know, and, that, and if anybody broke the law, that they would be thrown into the lion's den. Wouldn't that be great, king? And the king, not knowing all the motivations that were behind this, you know, he says, well, you know what? That would be great. That sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. And they intentionally got the king to pass a law that they knew would be a problem for believers in God. They got a law passed that they knew would force a believer to choose between allegiance to the king and allegiance to their God. Say, so does that sound familiar to you at all? I mean, the devil is still playing from the same playbook 3,000 years later. I mean, because we've seen more policies and laws passed in our country to say nothing of laws in other countries that seem to be aimed at making Christians choose between allegiance to the government and allegiance to God. And so what did Daniel do? Well, it says when Daniel learned about the decree, it says he went home to his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel, when he was faced with the choice of having to be faithful to God, allegiance to his God or to the king, said, there's no question here. If I have to choose, if I'm forced to choose, I will be faithful to God. And so this time is different. This time, Daniel recognized that there was, there was no godly appeal to be had, right? Um, just the choice between allegiance to the king or allegiance to God. And he chose allegiance to God, even, even though he knew that he would be thrown to the hungry lions. I mean, Daniel didn't know. I mean, we've read the rest of the story, right? But Daniel didn't know that God was going to close the mouths of those lions, right? As far as he knew, he... He was making the decision, he was choosing allegiance to God, and he would likely meant a violent death for himself. You know, it's not every day that we're forced with a decision like that, right? But more and more, we are seeing Christian business owners and others being forced into choices between honoring God in the way they act and the way they do business or facing legal consequences for that. This is happening more and more, and it takes... Faith, it takes allegiance to God to stand in situations like that. And we should support people like that in prayer. All these people in the Bible chose allegiance to God as the most important motivating factor in their lives. And if time permitted, you know, we could go on and talk about Elijah and Jeremiah and all of the other prophets as well, and all of the apostles and the, and the early believers in the New Testament, people all throughout history, right? People who made a statement of faith when it really counted, right? People whose allegiance to God rose above every challenge that life brought their way. So as we conclude this morning, I thought we would conclude with something of a statement of faith. Let me just read to you a chorus from a song that we often sing here. And it goes like this. This is kind of our statement of faith. These are the things that we have allegiance to. And it says, I believe in God the Father. And I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name 
of Jesus. Would you all bow in prayer with me as we close this service? Our Heavenly Father, over and over again, you have shown us and declared your love and faithfulness to us. God, in love, you created us. You gave us uh, your one and only Son to die for us, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. You redeemed us. You filled us with your Holy Spirit, God. You've given us your very great and precious promises, God. You've cared for us, you've, and you've promised to return for us so that we can be with you forever. God, we declare that you've been faithful to us. And God, with your help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will be faithful to you. God, as our forefathers declared their reliance on divine providence in their day, so we also declare right now our reliance on you, our allegiance to you, and our faith in you. So God, make us faithful people in everything so that we might show forth your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.